Welcome to Tammy Sparacino Journal Club Casino Podcast, hosted by Tammy Sparacino. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Journal Club at the PerfWeb Studios here in Houston. You'll notice I am solo today. Our normal, uh, wonderful host, Joe Basha, will not be able to join us today. So I will be doing the Journal Club um, by myself. First, I would like to first uh, first, I would like to welcome you for taking the time to join us today. We will have five programs this week, a few in the morning, a few in the afternoon, and today is day one. We'll be doing uh, the Tammy Sparacino Journal Club. We uh, do have some ways for you to interact with us. You're welcome to send a chat question via YouTube, and we do have someone monitoring that. We also have a call-in number, and you can check the scroll at the bottom of the screen for that number when it is available. I want to also direct you to check out our perfweb.us website. We have um, a, a listing of all of our upcoming shows as well as a way to get to our library of all of our shows that have been recorded. Um, membership is free and you're able to uh, just pay for the CEUs as you need them. Well, let's go ahead and get started today. The article that we're going to be talking about was published in 2021 in the Journal of Perfusion. The title is Cytosorb, Hemoabsorption of Apixaban, also known as Eliquis, During Emergent Cardiopulmonary Bypass, a Case Report. This article was written by Mendez and colleagues out of Switzerland. They're at Lausanne University Hospital, and they are in the Department of Cardiac Surgery. So we'll go ahead and get uh, into the abstract. A little bit of background. Perioperative coagulation management of patients receiving apixaban, a new oral anticoagulant, is difficult. The cytosorb hemoadsorption device might represent a therapeutic option to reduce apixaban's pharmacological and inflammatory effects during high-risk surgery. The case presentation is an 83-year-old woman treated with apixaban, underwent emergent redo mitral valve replacement for prosthetic valve endocarditis. A cytosorb cartridge was added to the cardiac cardiopulmonary bypass circuit, a Pixaban-specific anti-factor um, 10A activity was measured um, perioperatively. After 100 minutes of CPB, a 50% um, rate decrease in the AFXAA uh, was observed as compared to pre-CPB values. Furthermore, we noticed 39% and 44% reductions in AFXAA levels in comparison to expected levels in patients with normal or altered renal function, respectively. The conclusion, insertion of the cytoserb cartridge into the CPB was safe and associated with a rapid cor um, correction of a pixaban-associated anticoagulation. Okay, uh, the reason why this paper was published was, um, of course, to go ahead and look at 
if cytosorb could be an effective way to be able to treat bleeding issues and hemodynamic instability for patients that have received um, apixaban. So we'll go over in a little bit more detail the case study demographics. So the patient was an 83-year-old female, um, 47 kilograms, 165 centimeters, history of congestive heart failure with a bioprosthetic um, mitral valve replacement two years prior, chronic AFib, lower limb DVT had developed recently. The patient was placed on a Pixivan, a 2.5 milligrams daily, admitted with a fever and decompensated heart failure. The echo showed severe mitral valve stenosis with a 20 millimeter vegetation on the leaflets. The Euro score um, two mortality was calculated at approximately 54%. Um, ejection fraction, uh, less than 30%. Um, and the last dose of apixaban was taken seven hours before surgery. Initial lab values, patient had anemia, hemoglobin of 9.1, a hematocrit of 28, thrombocytopedia, with platelets at 146, stage two acute uh, kidney um, impairment and injury with a serum creatinine of 106. Patient was suffering from inflammation with C-reactive protein at 126, baseline ACT 104, thromboplastin time 26, Apixaban specific antifactor 10A activity at 72. All right, let's talk about how they went about this. So their methods and procedures. Um, the CPB circuit included a centrifugal pump, Revolution by Levanova. Membrane oxygenator was the KPOX FX15 by Terumo. Heart shell reservoir by Terumo. Um, and it had a 70 mil, uh, milliliter, milliliter minimum reservoir, a hemoconcentrator by McKay, and the cardioplegia system by Levanova, the CSC14. The cytosorb was, uh, cartridge was inserted between the oxygenator and the venous reservoir, and the hemoabsorption was performed throughout the duration of the bypass run. So their technique was to continuously run it during CPB. They used um, a way to measure the AFXAA levels with a device by Biofin, and it was uh, uh, used a color colometry uh, at specific points during the cases. Heparin reversal was um, with protamine using the Medtronic HMS system. Real quick, let's just talk about adsorption versus absorption, just so we're clear, because it can be a little confusing. So cytosorb works via ab 
adsorption, which means the molecules adhere to the surface of the device, versus absorption, which is where a substance is then taken into a physical structure. Most commonly, we think of something like a sponge or a tissue um, absorbing a liquid. But you can see here on this diagram that the molecules are stopping at the surface on the left-hand side, indicating adsorption, and on the right-hand side, the molecules are passing through the surface and going into the actual body or cross phase. Here's a, a diagram that I borrowed from the Cytosorb website, and it shows the flow of blood, and you can see starting, let me turn this pin on here. Oh, okay. Um, starting here um, and flowing up in through the reservoir and in through the reservoir, down through the pump head. And then right here, just before the oxygenator, is where um, a stopcock uh, adapter line was added and flowing through the cytosorb cartridge, just like this. This is where the adsorption's occurring and with um, returning out the other side and back into the venous reservoir. And of course, uh, blood is being split, going through the oxygenator and then being returned to the patient. Also from Cytosorb's website. So um, for setting it up, I actually have never used this device. I've read about it a little bit, but I wanted to go ahead and just touch on um, their steps for putting it into your CPP circuit. Um, it actually looks quite simple. So the Cytosorb um, is connected via a feeding tube system. It must be pre-filled and air-free using uh, isotonic saline solution. Under no circumstances should any air into, enter the cytosorb absorber. So of course you want to prime your bypass circuit as normal, and then you wanna go ahead and open up your inflow to the cytosorb cartridge flow the saline through it and connect it back into the bypass circuit. You wanna take care to make sure that you are de-airing properly by giving it um, a few taps to make sure all the bubbles rise and flow up and out of the membrane. The, um, uh, it's, the cytosorb cartridge is marked, so you wanna pay attention to the um, running direction indicated on the label to make sure that you don't in, uh, install it upside down. The recommended blood flow should be um, between 150 and 700 milliliters per minute, but at minimum, you wanna flow 100 mLs per minute. The maximum use time for the cytosorb should not exceed 24 hours. It may be useful to replace the absorber earlier if there are indications of exhausted elimination capacity. The post-operative continued use of the absorber in a CRT system is available, but after it's already been used in the CPB circuit, it's not recommended to um, change from using the previously used cartridge. Go ahead and set up a new one. 
The, um, you want to check the um, extracorporeal circulation at regular intervals for signs of blood clots and seeding of the connection um, uh, for the top and bottom of the cartridge. As far as anticoagulation, the cytosorb must be installed in a bypass of the main flow, um, as usual with the hemoconcentration therapy. Pressure or flow monitoring of cytosorb bypass line is recommended. The fl blood flow through the cytosorb should be continuous, so you don't want to start it and then stop it. You want to go ahead, once you um, have opened it up and start your absorption process, you want to leave it flowing through that until you have completed your bypass run. Or you've completed your adsorption and you need to perhaps change it out if it's going to be a longer case and you see that it is no longer um, at capacity for elimination. The adsorber, adsorber should be installed before hemoconcentration in series and not in parallel because, again, it needs to be off the main flow of the um, uh, bypass lines. The ultrafiltrate line of the hemoconcentrator should only be opened for fluid removal. As far as specific coagulation, anticoagulation must be effective at the start of the treatment. Anticoagulation with heparin of an ACT of 160 to 210 is sufficient for cytosorb. Of course, if you're using this on bypass, your ACT would be much higher, and so you would be fine with that. Looking at the uh, materials that are required, there is a bracket system to be able to hold the cytosorb. Um, so you need about four clamps for the priming uh, of it, and then you need some normal saline, about two liters. You need the adsorber cartridge, and then you'll need um, the two um, lines that are the adapter lines that uh, flow out and into the adsorber. If you want to go ahead and take a look at um, the actual interoperative use within the CPB. So um, step one is just to prime your circuit um, according to your normal operating procedures. Step two is going to be to prepare the cytosorb. You're going to just connect line A to a um, IV bag that has saline in it. And then you're going to close your clamp and uh, de-air the line. Then connect it bubble-free to the cytosorb blood inlet, which is, um, if you'll look right here on the screen. So we're at A. We've primed this line. And then we've closed our clamp. Now we've now got our cartridge and we're connecting here at the bottom of the cytosorb. Observe the flow direction to make sure that you are indeed flowing from the bottom through the top. And you can see the label here, um, you're going to be um, flowing from the bottom towards the name cytosorb. Okay. Then um, you're going to connect the cytosorb blood outlet at the top here. And you're going to then um, connect the, uh, this is line B right here. And then you will connect it 
to C over here where you are going to um, open clamp A, flush the cytosaur by gravity with two liters of normal saline, okay? Close the clamps uh, at A and at B and at C and then you are primed. The integration into your CPB circuit, you're going to mount your cytosorb on your bracket. You're gonna keep it vertical on the heart-lung machine um, bracket. Separate A from the saline bag, so you're here. A is gonna be separated from the saline bag. And you're uh, then going to connect it bubble-free in a high-flow three-way three valve um, lure lock uh, at the main line uh, of the, after the blood pump. So this is your, your forward flow and your pump, and then this is going to be where the cytosorb is getting its blood source. Okay, and You want to make sure your stopcock is high-flow. You're going to then connect B, which is, here's your B line. And you are going to then connect that to the reservoir via, via another high flow lure lock connection here. So we're taking from here, going through here, and returning here, just like the animation that I showed earlier. If necessary, you can regulate the blood flow in the bypass line by using the roller clamp on A here. Okay? Looks like a pretty easy setup. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of the results. All right, looking at our case study results, they have this graph here. I, I mentioned before that the effective levels of AFXAA were measured. So these are the, uh, this is the graph that was created from those measurements. So preoperatively, the patient had an, acti um, an XA activity of 72. After the administration of 27,000 um, non-fractionated heparin uh, prior to bypass, the ACT reached was 409. CPB was conducted in the standard fashion using pH stat. The um, infected bioprosthesis was removed with, um, and replaced with a porcine stented valve by St. Jude. And CPB duration was 100 minutes with 74 minutes for aortic cross-clamping. This figure illustrates the perioperative evolution of the plasma AFXAA level. On anesthesia induction, we can look at, so here's initial, which was pre-opt, and that was at 72. Then anesthesia induction at uh, T2 right here. The patient's level was at 64. You see he had a slight drop just because the eloquist is starting to wear off. After the heparin administration and CPB initiation, we're up at T3. We're up here at our highest point, And it was increased to 114. It, and it dropped to 32 after weaning, which is shown here at T5. 
Finally, the levels remained stable over the next several hours, but remained greater than 20 for the next 24 hours. The post-operative course was uneventful. In particular, there were no bleeding complications, and the patient left the ICU post-op day two and on the hospital post-op day 26. So just to get into a little bit of discussion, you might be wondering why that after uh, we initiated bypass, why our um, AFXAA levels got all the way up to over 100 here at T3. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. In a, a Pixaban treated patients requiring emergent surgery, this non um, non-dialysis effective character, the drug is related, is because it's high protein capacity, um, it can lead to bleeding complications. So you can't just send the patient through dialysis prior to surgery. There is um, another treatment that is andexanate alpha. It's a modified recombinant inactive form of human factor um, XA that was designed specifically to bind and sequester factor XA inhibitor molecules, therefore, uh, thereby rapidly reducing the anti-factor XA activity. In a study of 134 patients who were receiving apixaban, the median value for anti-factor XA activity was reduced from 149.7 at baseline to 11.1 at the end of the 400 milligram bolus of andexanet administration. Andexanet was approved by the European Medicines Agency in April of 2019. It is, however, not yet available in most institutions, um, including ours, due, due to its high cost. So this would be a, an alternative way to deal with this patient that has been dosed with the um, Aliquis, but it was not available. So in this present case, we demonstrated for the first time the intraoperative clearance of apixaban using Cytosorb. This device can be easily inserted into the CPB circuit and has been shown to effectively remove various inflammatory cytokines and drugs. During CPB, the AFXAA levels are difficult to interpret because of the indirect inhibition of factor XA by heparin. So that's why you see the increase on this um, figure illustration. Um, it's not because the patient um, had more Eliquis given to them. It's due to the indirect effect from heparin. Uh, let's see. Uh, nevertheless, we observed a 50% decrease of the AFXAA levels between the start of T2 and the weaning at T5. Furthermore, we extrapolated the expected concentrations of apixaban based on theoretical apixaban half-lives in normal and renal, renal insufficient patients, we found that the levels of AFXAA at 32 at the end of CPB in our patient was respectively 39% in normal renal patients or 44% lower 
um, expected and with patients that have reduced function. Without the cytosorb, the normal would have been at 52, and the reduced renal function patient would have been at 57. The authors say it's important to note that unfractionated heparin activity during CPB results in an increase in AFXAA activity as measured with the nonspecific biofin test, and that the results during CPB therefore cannot be interpreted. Protamine administration also influences the results, but since protamine neutralizes the unfractionated heparin and not the apixaban, the residual anti-XA activity after heparin neutralization can be interpreted as the apixaban activity that is left. We considered continuing the cytosorb therapy in ICU, however, after CPB, the patient was hemodynamically stable without bleeding. We decided to discontinue the therapy since this would require the placement of an extracorporeal circuit, which could lead to other complications. All right, we'll talk about the results. In conclusion, these op uh, observations suggest that the cytosorb may increase apixaban's clearance and might facilitate perioperative hemostatic management. And that's the case presentation, guys. So, do we have any questions on the YouTube chat? Let me check with the production team. We have Joe commenting, great program. Although he's not able to join us, you know he can't help but watch it. Um, hoping we'll get some questions here so we can further discuss. Now I know we're all familiar with these types of drugs that these patients are coming in on, Eliquis being a very popular one. And so this seems like this would be a really easy way to go ahead and be able to get some of these urgent and emergent patients that come down from the cath lab or come in through the ER and know that we're going to be able to really lower the levels um, of effectiveness of these drugs without having to wait and putting that patient at risk by delaying the surgery. I don't actually have um, I'm not sure if Cytosorb is available in any of the hospitals that we go to, but I would be very interested to hear from anyone that has had any experience, experience using this in CPB. I know that this is a common um, adjunct to CRRT for a lot of patients in ICUs that are having um, uh, issues with inflammatory response. It's uh, used mostly for removing cytokines, but it, it looks like it could be a very effective way to be able to um, remove some medications as well. All right, guys, need some sort of questions. I don't have Joe here to banter with. Nothing. All right, well, we'll talk a little bit about what we're doing. Uh, maybe you guys are thinking of a question. So we'll talk a little bit about what else we're doing this week. So we're going with a little bit different format this year where we're able to um, break up our programs into bite-sized chunks, if you will. 
So this week we are going to be doing an hour-long program Monday through Friday. Um, all covering different topics. Um, we'll have Joe back with us uh, tomorrow. Uh, he'll be coming in um, uh, from uh, off location, but he will be presenting a little bit. And uh, we'll have him here discussing CRRT. That program's going to be at 8 in the morning. Then on Wednesday, we'll be back to our usual um, First Wednesday of the month, although we had to delay it one week, with Vanderbilt. Well, we'll have our Vanderbilt Forum, and I know that's always very interesting. Um, commentary and presentation, uh, we're always very thrilled to have them with us. Then on Thursday, we'll have our own John Ingram back with us to discuss Knowledge Nuggets. Oh, it sounds like we have a call. Go ahead. Do we have a caller? Yeah, hey, Jimmy, this is John Ingram. Hey, John, I was just discussing you're going to be here on Thursday for your Knowledge Nuggets at 3 o'clock, I believe. And I, am, am I correct a, in, uh, is it Septic Shock? Yeah, Septic Shock is going to be a, a whopper of a Knowledge Nuggets. It's going to be 45-minute or so lecture because that's a big topic, as you can imagine. So I'm actually um, putting the finishing touches today on uh, on that lecture hopefully oh so, good um, well that'll be I great wanted to tell you the, i wanted to tell you the m minimal experience i had with the cider zorb probably goes close to a year ago in my travels on an ecmo coverage uh they they were using it um i think the patient had initially just gone on ecmo and trying to of course um temper down, damper, dampen down the inflammatory response, which I guess is its main indication. But what I was told at the time, and maybe you know more, others, others might know more, was that it really wasn't approved in the United States. I don't even know if it is totally approved in the United States, but they gave it emergency approval just for COVID ECMO, uh, as far as I was told. And that was, like I said, about probably close to a year ago. So they did use it, but only for... Um, I think it was a 24 or 48-hour period. I think it was only 24 hours, believe it or not. I think I'd come in, and they had already put it on, and it was already on about 10 or 10 hours, and I had to change it out, and they used it for an additional 12 hours. So um, they used it for 24 hours, and then they didn't use it any further than that. So I guess they were trying to dampen down the initial inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. And some of the critical care uh, physicians that I spoke to there um, kind of didn't think it was all, all, all helping all that much or was going to help all that much, although I will say I don't know that they knew a whole lot about it. It was um, not something that I think hardly any of us had any experience with. I have not heard of it used for a particular drug removal like you talked about, so that, that is very interesting. I didn't know it had other capabilities. What are your thoughts about all that? How did you find uh, it incorporating it? It was, I guess it was already incorporated when you, you, you got there, uh, but you had to change it out. Was it pretty easy to uh, prime and incorporate into the circuit? Yeah, um, they had, um, you, you have to rinse it through. Isn't that correct? You have to rinse it through with a couple liters, I think you said, mm -hmm. of uh, crystal oil. Yes, saline. It, it uh, asked for an isotonic saline rinse and making sure it's de-aired. It kind of reminded me of um, 
uh, back when I was doing uh, neonate and pediatric ECMO, when we would have hemoconcentrators, you know, incorporated into a closed circuit and, and, and making sure that, you know, you got to get it de-aired. Of course, uh, this one was used with an open uh, hard shell reservoir. So, you know, the, the de-airing, um, I imagine was a lot less stressful, but I did not used to enjoy that, that's for sure, because those uh, type of fibers can really be difficult to be sure you've gotten all the bubbles out. Well, like you said, it was, it was feeding back to, um, to a reservoir or to the um, inlet side of the cardiohelp, if I recall, and so the air, I guess, would have been able to go back in that system, but you know, many years ago, when you used the hemoconcentrator on bypass in the 80s and 90s, they all required rinsing. You had to rinse the, uh, I want to say it was silicone. Oh. But the fibers were preserved with, I think it was silicone. The fibers were, were preserved in shipping and packaging with silicone, and you had to flush at least, uh, I think it was 1,500 to 2,000 cc's of um, Saline and uh, you know in, into a into a bucket. You you couldn't uh, you had to make sure you got rid of all that silicone. I think it was out of the hemoconcentrator, and then you could put it into your circuit. So I remember every day we had a hemoconcentrator as part of our routine part of our circuit, and it was a process that we went through whereby we we rinsed the hemoconcentrator um, and uh, and got all that silicone out. So I remember in the case of the cytosorb, I think that. They had um, either pre-rinsed it for me or they had a, a I want to say it was a separate uh, pressure bag system. I don't recall pumping it through any type of roller pump, but I think they must have had a pressure bag system yep. and, a, and, a, and a way to discharge the fluid. And I believe I pumped uh, two liters of, uh, of what you said, um, isotonic crystalloid through there. And then, uh, then you clamp it off, and they had a way to, you know, connected and disconnected through a stopcock system, if I recall. And then uh, with a cardio help, you know, um, you, uh, you could make pretty close to an air-free connection. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the air would go through the cytosorb and probably get eliminated that way and then come back to the backside of the, of the cardio help and then have a plenty of opportunity to be gear also through the... Uh, through mm -hmm. the membrane, and then of course it was a VVS, uh, if, if I recall, because it was for, for COVID. So uh, we weren't terribly concerned about it, but of course we did everything we could for that. But I, um, I just was um, uh, wondering if anybody out there, if they really use it for more than just those first 24 hours on an ECMO run, mm -hmm. because you know you have a really prolonged systemic inflammatory response, but it is very high in the first. 24 hours, and I guess maybe after that, um, uh, well, I, I think maybe it was a cost issue, too. Aren't these things uh, fairly expensive? And we had to get special order to get them over here from, from Europe. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm really surprised because I, I read a little bit about it. Obviously, I went to the manufacturer's website trying to learn a little bit more about this so that I would be able to speak on this article. And they actually um, had an entire section that looked like it was a newer section in response to COVID, uh, and it was said COVID-19 applications. Now, I didn't look too much into that um, since that wasn't what my particular case study was about. 
But it seems like somebody, somewhere, uh, they're using it for that reason. And, you know, we've discussed this many times, um, more times than probably people want to hear it, that, you know, we really think that, uh, you know, the cytokine um, storm is causing a lot of those really serious problems for our ECMO patients. So it seems like we would have seen this a little bit over here if it was something that was readily available to us. Um, I would really like to hear from anybody, maybe even we have some um, viewers over um, in Europe that might have had some exposure or experience to this. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we have yeah, that would be interesting to know if anybody has a large-scale usage of it and they could compare how patients fared with it or without it. But I, um, I don't know the present state of it. This was about a year ago. I, I believe it's probably not changed. It's not difficult to get. You have to order it from Europe, and you probably have to get some type of approval to even get it over here. And then... Um, it can only be used on a COVID ECMO, I believe. I don't, I don't think you can use it on a regular COVID patient. I, I'm not sure about that. Like I said, it was only the one time. It was easy to use. Um, I had no clinical evidence how much it worked or not because right. I was only there on one shift. And um, like I said, I remember the one critical care physician that was working the, the shift with me wasn't too... Um, uh, favorable on the fact that it was going to do much of anything, but I think it, it actually does. I, I'm not saying just because yeah. he or she said that, that that was the case. I think it does actually have an impact. I just wonder, um, yeah, it would be interesting to know the people that use this widespread, which would yeah, be I got, in the United States. Yeah, we've got someone talk. who uh, sent a chat uh, comment over. John, I'll read it to you. Uh, this person uh, is in Spain. They said, at my center in Spain, we use it in aortic dissections, um, patients that need emergency surgery, and valvular endocarditis, but the operation must last at least 60 minutes. And then uh, sent another comment in, and then also in their ECMO patients with COVID, with a more aggressive treatment with, um, uh, let's see, they said six hours, six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours. Uh, I'm assuming that that means they're, they're doing it maybe at the six hour increment and then maybe 12 and then 24. So it does sound like maybe they were doing it uh, sort of like what you saw, John, when you had your um, experience with it, that maybe within the first 24 hours of going on ECMO, they're doing that. Hmm. So they're changing it out after the first six hours again after the second six hours, they change it again at 12 hours, and then one more time at 24. Yeah. I guess that's what this Yeah, I guess that's what that means, because they didn't really go into how you would know when it's reached its elimination capacity, um, but there mm -hmm. must be some uh, mechanism or uh, way to be able to tell that it's no longer doing what it's supposed to do. And, you know, if you were in one of those cytokine storms, I would imagine that it's not going to last its um, full 24 hours, right? It's, it's, it's really doing a lot of hard work there. Um, thanks. Yeah, I, I, I don't, 
I was just going to say thank you for um, our friend in Spain for writing that in. That's that's really interesting. I'm so glad I got to speak to someone about um, uh, you know using it with the COVID patients and just regular patients. I'm sorry, John. What were you going to say? Yeah, I wonder if the uh, chatter there could explain how they know when the Statazorb is maxing itself out. Yeah. Or um, how they judge that. Or maybe there's studies that have shown after so many hours, so they're basing the, the, their change out on studies that have occurred over there. Because mm -hmm. I don't know how knowledgeable we would be over here about. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. That would be great if um, if you do have a way to uh, um, uh, share with us how you know when it's time to change it out. Is it scheduled just based on predictability of the elimination um, capacity, or if there are you know uh, blood tests that you're running and you're seeing that you know, certain levels are dropping, so you know that, that uh, the filter must be working uh, and estimating its capacity or really how that's determined. Um, that would be really interesting to know. And so if any they, um, he's saying there that they use it to remove those two drugs as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's what uh -huh. Yeah, sorry, yeah. and I, I, I sort of skipped right over that, correct. Um, and yeah, so, so they're using it for exactly what we're talking about, uh, using this as well. So um, that, uh, let me pull it up. What, well, what, I guess that would uh, hopefully go a long way to, uh, yep. you know, reduce, uh, reduce bleeding complications, right? Right, or delaying the surgery. I know that, um, you know, sometimes patients come in like that and really they would like to do the surgery right away, right? But we're worried about the bleeding and so we're waiting, a, you know, a certain amount of time uh, uh, to see if we're able to um, let, have the patients get in a, a more stable, uh, coagulable state for sure. Well, All right, what, thank you so much. Great job, great job, Jamie. Thanks. Thanks for calling in, John. We look forward to Thursday Knowledge Nuggets and Septic Shock at 3 o'clock. So we will talk right. to you then. Yeah. All right, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We have any more questions or comments back there? Nope. All right, well, um, I'll continue on with what I was talking about for the um, schedule this week. So today we're doing Journal Club. We'll spin the wheel shortly and see if we have um, a winner because we've got two people. We got a call in and a comment, so that's great. Um, tomorrow will be Joe talking about CRRT. Wednesday will be our Vanderbilt uh, Faculty Forum, and that one will be um, at our usual 7 a.m. time. Thursday, again, John's Knowledge Nuggets, and he'll be going a little bit longer this time. He took a pretty complicated topic, and it's going to take him a bit to be able to explain all about septic shock, and I'm sure it will be interesting and entertaining the way it always is. I'm always looking forward to the, the gem of the week. And um, then Friday, we have a new toy here at PerfWeb. We have the Eigenflow Simulator, and so we are going to do an hour-long program. Joe will be back um, by Thursday's show, so 
Friday, he and I will have um, a simulation show using the Eigenflow, and we'll go over some different ECMO simulations and just see um, how to use this as a good learning tool. We're really looking forward to it. Joe's been playing around with it for uh, a few weeks now, and uh, I think he's got uh, the system down. We've also got... Um, some monitors that we're going to be able to show you what's actually going on with our simulation patient. And we'll have the Eigenflow hooked up to our ECMO circuit, and we'll really have some good hands-on demonstrations to be able to show you. So we'll just uh, give it maybe one more minute if anybody's got some additional comments or questions. And we will get the... Um, Tammy Sparacino Journal Club Casino up and ready to spin. Oh, do I? Okay, let's see. Okay, we'll get the production staff to go ahead and get that up. That's something Joe normally pulls up, and I gotta say, I didn't wasn't exactly sure where I was getting it. Okay. Oh, there it is. All right. There we go. Do I need to share the screen or we have it? All right. Okay. All right, so we are going to spin. I think we'll do it for our, our, our commenter from Spain. We really appreciate you calling in and sharing your knowledge. So let's see what we got for you. Joe always likes to get the aortic dissection or extra call, but I'm going to spin till you win. You didn't call for that. All right. Looks like we've got a ball cap for you. Please um, go ahead and send an email to um, perfusioneducation at... Uh, oh, per oh, okay. Uh, actually, our production staff will contact you so that we can get your name and address and a color preference for the ball cap, and we'll get that out to you. Thanks for participating with us today. Well, I think that about wraps it up, and we might finish just a few minutes early, but I'd like to wish everyone a happy Valentine's Day, if that's something that you're into. I wore my heart sweater for you guys, um, and I hope everyone has a wonderful afternoon or evening, depending on where you're joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow at 8 a.m. Central Time, where Joe will be discussing CR CRRT. Thanks, everyone.